Hi. Great. Welcome back. Hi. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> so welcome back to this whatever episode of Kvetch Fest. Yeah. And I, I feel like I want to preface this episode by saying like when we first recorded our conversation for the first episode, you know, we were doing it as just like a spur of the moment. Oh my gosh, this is a conversation that we think our friends need to hear. I did not think that we would be three months into this and still need to be unpacking stuff. But since we already have this platform, you know, we're going to use it and connect with our audience. And there's a lot more that has come up that we want to unpack. So we felt like it was important to continue this conversation. So here we are. Yes, here we are. And and again, prefacing every episode with this isn't a place for like hot takes. We are not experts. We are just two Jewish friends having a conversation and untangling shit together. And I just pulled up the most recent statistics. Feel as though it's really important to acknowledge the where we're at and how many lives have been lost in this. I'll start with in Israel, there were, I'm getting this from Al Jazeera. This was the latest figure as of January 5th, which is what we're today. In Israel, there was 1,139 killed and at least 8,730 injured. Um, In Palestine, the numbers are broken up into Gaza and the occupied West Bank. In Gaza, there's been at least 22,600 murdered, um, at least 9,600 or children and 57,910 have been injured, at least 8,000 of which are children and more than 7,000 people are missing. In the occupied West Bank, there's been at least 325 killed, including 83 children and at least 3,800 have been injured. Every single life is valuable. Every single person had dreams, aspirations, relationships, family, friends. We're looking at numbers, but every single every single number was a person. It's so hard to hold this. I cannot believe that we are we, we are now at three months. Today's 90 days. I think that as the numbers go up and as the days go by, something that I'm seeing happening and something I'm struggling within myself is to not numb it all out. It is so much to hold and the grief is so intense and immense. There's just this really big impulse of it's becoming normalized and staying sensitive about it at this point and sustaining has been really, really hard. I have been struggling lately with figuring out how to sustain the momentum. And a huge part of that is sustaining the feelings uh, Mm. and being sensitive and having those feelings, letting these numbers move me instead of paralyze me. I've been doing a lot of actions and a lot of work. And I also am noticing that I'm feeling a little numb. Like it's almost so much that it's hard to have the feeling sometimes. Um, So I just want to acknowledge that. I know that other people are struggling with that too right now. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like what you and I had talked about is we have hit three months and if it had been one month, if it had been two months, I know that I could have kept up my activism the way that I was because I felt like there was an end in sight, but hitting three months is like, that's habit forming. This is a a habit where every morning I'm waking up and I'm contacting my representatives. And then during the day I'm constantly scrolling and I'm seeing horrific images coming out of Gaza. And every day it seems to get worse. I I feel like we are very fortunate in that we live in a place where we are safe, where we can, we can take a break, but we can take a break because we're doing the work. Right. Right. Exactly. And we're going to serve the movement better by taking a beat to take care of ourselves and to tune out of that numbness. Yeah. Because it is, it is overwhelming. And maybe something we can talk about, what are things that have helped you snap back in? Following people on the ground definitely snaps me back in because whatever we are experiencing pales in comparison to what people are experiencing on the ground. We are bearing witness, but they are experiencing genocide. Seeing what people are going through snaps me back direct action snaps me back. So when I'm with a group of people who are all aligned, for me, that's been protests that I've been participating in. Um, Yeah, being in that community really grounds me. And more recently, I've been having like direct conversations with people who I either didn't know how they felt about it and they're Jewish, or they came out pro-Israel and they've seen what I've been posting and they've been following stories and they're starting to wake up and we're having, we're actually able to have like a dialogue where they're like, I can admit that this has gone too far. Like I'm still trying to unpack stuff, but Israel has gone too far. Yeah. So like a victory and reminds me that everything that we're doing is for a good reason and that we're actually having impacts within our own community. Totally. Totally. I feel that way too. I think that that has been pulling me back in. I've noticed that having these conversations for the last three months has been like exhausting. And I think just we're holding these numbers and people are still struggling to use words like genocide. And it's hard to continue having compassion for people, I think. But I will say that um, like just last night I had dinner with my family and my aunt was asking. So I went to a big direct action in Sacramento, which was amazing. Really beautiful. We shut down the legislative session. Yeah, you did. (laughs) It was hot. We were all wearing adult diapers. It was amazing. We were ready for anything. I want to plug that like, if you go to a direct action, you will be wearing an adult diaper and it honestly galvanizes you. I'm committed. I can be here all day. (laughs) All day, mama. Also, I just feel like I will not be able to pee myself no matter what, even though I'm wearing a diaper, I psychologically cannot be like, okay, I'm going to let it rip anyways. But I do feel very held by these direct actions because those conversations are so incredibly important and they're so exhausting. They really take the gas out of my tank and going to these big direct actions are what puts the gas back into the tank. And I think that that has felt really good to be around a people I'm fully aligned with and we're all singing together. We're all praying together and we're all 
standing up for justice together. Um, I will also say that as a theater kid, I love direct action because the ones I've been to, at least there's always this element of surprise where we're all like wearing business casual Mm -hmm. and uh, at the Sacramento one, we were like walking around the Capitol for uh, two hours before everybody made it into the building because we had to go in, in little groups of three and four. And so we had to come up with a little cover story. And I wanted us to be method actors starring in a courtroom drama. And that's why we were there. Amazing. <laughs> Literally, everyone was like, you're being so extra, which is fine. I love my group. Instead, we were there visiting our friend. Uh, But I will say people's acting skills were off the charts. Like I was in line (laughs) in the bathroom and this woman who was like a part of the action was telling me about how she was there with other teachers to see if it was a good place for a field trip. I was like, I don't think she knows that I'm also part of the action. But she (laughs) went off. Like she kept going. She's like, yeah, I don't know if it's a great place for that. But I'm thinking about it. She's like oversharing and you're like, ma'am I'm here with you actually yeah you don't have to sell this to me like it was amazing and then there is this big superman moment right and we we go into the big assembly room and we're all pretending to be tourists we're like wow we can't wait to watch them legislate like so see them govern like wow (laughs) um and then we go in there and uh someone yelled out uh you know which means Mm -hmm. like we are here so we took off our tops and uh we were just wearing our um, uh, no money for genocide, not in our name shirts. And we sang together and it was just really beautiful. Um, and I think that gave me a lot of strength. I think that these direct actions have felt so organized. I, it feels so good to go to them and be like, oh, all I have to do is show up. They have thought about every little detail, super mm-hmm. organized, super tactical, and intentional. And we we talked about setting a tone the night before. We COVID tested and we made sure we were wearing our masks properly. It was every little detail was thought out. We had people in mobility devices who were at the front of it, you know, and they were leading us. It's so beautiful. And I hope that everybody gets a chance to be a part of something like this, because I will say it gave me fuel. And then I was at dinner with my aunt and she was like, well, did anyone talk about the hostages at this direct action? And I, first of all, was like, oh, you mean you're talking about the Israeli hostages, not the, you know, thousands of thousands of Palestinians hostages that have been in jail for, you know, decades. Yeah, exactly. And so she asked about that and I, you know, started to respond about how the purpose of the action was to tell our legislature to not send $600 billion in aid to Israel to continue bombing Gaza. And we had a beautiful display that was showing each little poppy represented 20 Palestinian lives. And Mm -hmm. it said over 30,000 Palestinians have died. And it was, um, so that was what it was about. And calling for a ceasefire means releasing the hostages, yes. yes. And also the legislature because of the Zionist propaganda, all they are thinking about are the hostages and terrorism, and they are not thinking about the 30,000 lives that have been lost. And so I think that um, I started to say all this, and my mom, who we've been having some really hard conversations, not always great. Sometimes I walk away crying and I call you and, you know, Um, yeah. She was like, you know, I've been really struggling to say this, but it 
is a genocide. And she clapped back at my aunt. And I was like, I could have cried. I was like, tears of joy. I was like, this is, this is why we're doing this work. And it's so hard and it feels like pulling teeth and it's emotionally draining, but it's worth it. We can move people and we are moving people. We are. Similarly, my dad, he was like a, he's a two-state solution person. Um, and he wanted to support Israel, but you know, he's, he's starting to turn around and recognize like, Hey, maybe I don't want my U S taxes going to this war. Yeah, You know, that's a step in the right direction. There's still a lot to unpack, but we are impacting people. We are changing minds and I totally feel galvanized by those small victories. Yeah, I something that I've been thinking about going into the new year is I want to spend more time in the collective and less in the individual space. And I've been feeling like activism is both like feels really great and this collective feeling and sometimes doing a lot, it can push me back into an individualist mindset, even though yeah. I'm doing a lot because I'm like, I'm doing all this stuff. Where is everyone else? You know, and then I'm exhausted, mental health in the trash, you know, just totally messed up. And of course I have to take care of myself. And that's because I just- You need to drink water. Yeah, I need to drink water. And I just went balls to the wall, which by the way, I've been saying balls to the wall so much lately. And I don't know what balls to the wall is in, in 2024. Uh, But yeah, so I've been going balls to the wall. And I think that that is also something that causes numbness within me as well. Also tapping fully out and being disengaged is another way of centering yourself, you know, because you're taking care of yourself, but it's also like you're not paying attention to what's happening. And then there's all that is happening is affecting you, whether you're thinking about it or not. And so I've been trying to figure out how to center the movement. And there have been really great indigenous activists who are sharing strategies because they've been doing this for literally ever. One of them brought up this uh, idea of activism and big movement work as being an ocean and waves and how certain people step forward and they go balls to the wall, as it were, and others stay back. And then they move back and the people who are behind them move forward. And it just Mm -hmm. ebb and a flow rather than like just the same people being out there and the same people staying behind. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that and really sink into the collective. Yeah, there are some amazing graphics that came out kind of early on, I think in like November that we're talking about movements as ecosystems mm-hmm. and how, you know, there's the storytellers, there's the healers, there's the alchemists, like everybody has a different role to play. And I think what you and I recognized is that we were doing so much in different spaces, but we felt that a podcast and actually having dialogue about this to help unpack this and encourage more people to get on board is one of the best ways that we energize ourselves and we know that we make a difference. Totally. Yeah. And, and just knowing that there is so much going on at once, like there are so many people doing all these different things and it can get really overwhelming, but finding that like space and deepening into it is like what has felt really grounding. Yeah. 
So maybe we can talk um, a little bit about my favorite person in the world, Naomi Klein. (laughs) Naomi Klein, our deity, just kidding, (laughs) brought up this idea around the doppelganger. Essentially, what one of her main messages is in her book is that you have to, you can't just ignore and cancel out the people you disagree with and expect change to happen. You have to face the people you disagree with and you have to see them because they are reflections of yourself Mm -hmm. and get into that mindset and also find the exit door and bring as many people out with you as you can. Mm -hmm. So listening to that podcast on the nose, Naomi Klein changed our lives. Uh, We could talk more about that too. Yeah. And you and I had attended like a Jewish voice for peace seminar on how to have conversations with Zionist family members during the holidays. And one of the main things that the organizers described was that no one has ever come from the Zionist community and become anti-Zionist by being shamed into it. I don't know how many resources there are out there for helping people unpack Zionism from Judaism and like how to make that transition. And yeah, I think the concept of like seeing, like, at least for me, like I was in the Zionist community. So like, I know what the rhetoric was and I know what people want. And I genuinely think most Zionists, most who might be ill-informed want peace but may not have all of the history because we are taught a a different history of the creation of Israel and what it means for the Jewish people and largely overlooks Palestinian history. And by largely, I mean almost entirely overlooks Palestinian history. And we're trying to help people find the exit door. Exactly. Because we all grew up with the same values around, you know, standing up to injustice speaking truth to power, asking lots of questions. Like there is so much wanting a better world, wanting a better world. All of that is identical because that's what we grew up with. That's why we are here speaking out today is because of all of the values, the same values that our Zionist friends also grew up with. And so when we don't address their pain and suffering that they're feeling we let them be taken over by the Israel-US propaganda machine that Mm -hmm. is preying on them. They are wanting people to feel uh, alone, isolated, hurt, so that they can pull them over. And so something that Naomi Klein brought up is that October 7th, for us, as people who were already radicalized, we were like, okay, this happened we know that this is going to be horrible for Palestinian people. And we went directly from this horrible thing that happened to the Jewish community into free Palestine because we knew, we knew the trajectory. We knew what was going to happen. And so I think that what a lot of people saw who were Zionist and didn't have that context, didn't have all of that leading up to it. Hadn't unpacked it hadn't unpacked it, saw October 7th happen, and then saw the reaction to October 7th happen 
And they were like, whoa, what the hell? Everyone's being anti-Semitic. And Israel was like, yeah, you're right. Everyone is being anti-Semitic. And then they all were shifted over there. And so I think that I was very much guilty of kind of dismissing people's feelings about October 7th. And I think that that did a big injustice to the movement and a disservice to the movement. So I think that having those conversations and validating the real pain and suffering that people were feeling around that day, um, I think that when we do that, it lets them be taken over into this whole other mirror world where there is just the similar thing of Israel is saying to them, oh, don't think about Palestinian lives. Don't think about what we're doing in Gaza. Just think about October 7th. And so I think that that has been something that kind of blew my mind when Naomi Klein was talking about it. And it changed my entire approach of of talking to people who were disagreeing with me. And I think it was successful. Yeah. Yeah. You were going to um, trap more flies with honey than with vinegar. Yes. You know, it's not about like sweetening the deal. It's it's being empathetic and meeting somebody where they're at. And yeah, like you said, we've done the work. We've, we knew the history. We understand this dynamic as an oppressor and the oppressed, but that's something that a lot of people are, are unpacking because they didn't know. And the systems in place, they functioned correctly. They functioned how they were supposed to, which was to have everybody think that this attack was about anti-Semitism so that they could further perpetuate violence. Exactly. And that is what's so messed up about this whole thing with Israel is that You know, I think that we grew up fearing anti-Semitic attacks. Israel wants us to feel like any attack against Israel is an attack against Jews everywhere. Like the Holocaust as an event, a historical event, has been drilled into all of our minds. I think Jewish or not, right? As Jews, it's this particular kind of history of trauma that that has been taught to us that we are this one thing happened in history this fixed thing happened israel and us were our saviors that's the history that we are taught right is that now we have this safe nation because the us finally stepped in so in that story the us is the good guy because they mm-hmm. gave us a nation state right and so it made it seem like the holocaust happened And then all oppression ended for everyone. This is not to, you know, there have been so many genocides in history that have happened. And this isn't to discount the real trauma and oppression that happened during the Holocaust. But it is to say that we treated that as if that was the only genocide that's ever happened and the only one that's ever happened since then, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's so dangerous to look at it that way. Because we are witnessing before our eyes the exact same thing that was done unto us. Mm -hmm. And because we think of the Holocaust as this fixed thing in the past that just happened one time, we are unable to see that this is happening again to a different group of people. So this is from the Holocaust Memorial Trust. I don't know if it's a... um 
Zionist website, but it's about the Holocaust. So we're going to use it as reference. It says that stage one is classification, saying that there are two different types of people in the Jewish ethno state that is Israel. That would be Jews and not Jews. And that also gets tied into racism because those are primarily Arab people, Arab Muslims, um, who are people of color. That's another layer to this. Stage two is symbolism. In Nazi Germany, this was the yellow star that people had to wear on their clothes. In occupied Palestine, that is ID cards. Mm -hmm. There's multiple different ID cards. If you are a Jewish Israeli, you have a different ID card as an Arab person who is not Jewish living in Israel. And then if you live in Gaza or the West Bank, you have a different card as well. That's the second stage. The third stage is discrimination. There are eons of cases of discrimination of Palestinians, whether that's not being able to acknowledge the Nakba, if there's an Israeli law that you are not allowed to acknowledge the Nakba on Israel's Independence Day. This is about access to healthcare, thinking of Palestinians in the West Bank or in Gaza who don't have access to these resources, who have to travel into the occupied portion of Palestine in order to receive care. This is about jobs that are available. This is about access to the outdoor world. There are numerous cases of this. Yes. Stage four is dehumanization. We have heard Israeli leaders dehumanizing Palestinians and calling them human animals. Yep. Yep. Super explicitly. Just with no remorse. Yeah. Just saying it on television, hearings, it is well documented. Then stage five is organization. It says genocides are always planned. I am reminded of a video that Janan Matari just made on Instagram where she actually goes through each of these. Highly recommend that video. And she debunks propaganda pieces and also recognizes that October 7th was planned and the Israeli government let it happen. There was there was suspicious activity on October 6th and the government moved the music festival closer to Gaza. Yeah, there's a group of uh, Israeli um, families who were affected by October 7th and the music festival who are suing the Israeli government because of this, because of these safety concerns, because they failed to keep these people safe. Exactly. And we can look at the stages of genocide, both in terms of the 1948 Nakba, which was the creation of the state of Israel that was the, from the Zionist perspective, it was the independence of Israel from the Palestinian side, it was the Nakba, the catastrophe, which was this forced displacement and the murders of, of thousands of Palestinians. I'm thinking about these stages in terms of um, October 7th and where we are now. But it's also important to recognize that th these stages are relevant to the Nakba um, because, for example, in terms of organization, British forces gave weaponry to Zionist militia who then carried out the attacks on like Dar Yassin, which are these historical events that altogether created the Nakba. Back to what's happening today. Stage six is polarization. Propaganda begins spread by hate groups. We've seen propaganda everywhere. It's, it's so insidious. There are militia groups, Zionist militia groups in 
Israel now who are still able to carry out attacks on Palestinian civilians with impunity mm-hmm. and are like armed. They are they are given arms as Israeli civilians to attack Palestinian civilians. Yeah, it is so messed up. And if we look at just the like propaganda that has been sweeping the U.S. too, like the Canary Mission, um, that is like actively doxing people who disagree with Israel, who are anti-Israel and anti-Zionist. It is strategic in how they silence people too, you know? They're so strategic in that it's like obviously creating the state, obvious to us, creating the state of Israel was never about Jewish safety, right? It was always about protecting the interests of these global powers and nation states. It was always about that. And the Mm -hmm. way that Israel has taken that narrative and made itself look like actually this is anybody who dissents to this is actually anti-Semitic and making itself look like a victim throughout all of this is astounding is the word I'm looking for. It just, it feels... It is. Yeah. And and I think that that is the experience we've been having and that's why we're here. But it's we just see how they are able to shift the narrative and make it look like victims. It's almost like making. And I think that what they are protecting is their power. They are not protecting Jews. They're protecting these bigger institutional institutional power. Yeah. Institutions. Exactly. And I think that as white Jews, a lot of people are. Anti-Semitism is real. Anti-Semitism is happening. And also what's happening is um, white privilege in this country, right? I think a lot of Jews, myself included, have experienced white privilege. Um, I've definitely experienced that (laughs) throughout my whole life, right? And there is something about how the power structures exist to make you feel fear of liberation Because the way that capitalism works, if somebody else has something, then you don't have it anymore. So if people who are oppressed have any kind of power, they're taking your power away because not everyone can have power at the same time is what they want us to believe. And so that is what Israel has done in this really phenomenal way. (laughs) I mean, like by utilizing real Jewish trauma. Exactly. And I would say like European Jewish trauma. Right. Specifically. Exactly. um, Weaponized it and said, poor us, we need to maintain power. We need this ethno state in order to keep our safety because the Holocaust happened to us. Exactly. And we can hold two truths at once that yes, the Holocaust is real. And yes, Jewish people have trauma written into their bones and Israel is an imperialist outpost that was created by the British in 1948 and has now been backed by the United States. Exactly. And something that I, I think that really shifted for my mom when we talked about it and what she keeps saying is it's not a yes, but it's a yes. And And I think that, you know, I think that that is, again, my little theater kid soul is just quelling. Yes, and like, and it's all interconnected. We're all cut from the same cloth, right? We're all, all of us are 
living under this in the same world, we're all in bodies, right? We are all part of humanity. So oppression towards one really means oppression towards all. And something that Naomi Klein said that, you know, Israel says, like the message that Israel keeps saying is that you get an ethno-fascist state that was founded on genocide, then we get to do that too. Like you did a (laughs) Holocaust on us, so we get to do a Holocaust. And that is the way that they, that is like the most extreme example of unprocessed trauma, because it's true that a lot of people in Israel are survivors of the most incomprehensible kinds of trauma. And Mm -hmm. it does not mean that, that, that they are able to do these crimes because of that. And I feel like I'm in a tug of war battle with the weaponization of the trauma and the more that Israel says, oh, oppression and trauma happened to us and pulls that into weaponizing against Palestine, the harder I have to pull and say, oh, no, we experience this oppression and trauma. And that means that nobody will ever experience this again, because never yeah. again is for everyone. And so it's it's a tug of war and it's the same rope. <laughs> One of the difficult conversations I keep running into is some people, some Jewish people talk about October 7th as a genocide. They say that was a genocide on the Jewish people. I looked up the, what the UN definition of genocide is, and it was the intent to destroy in whole or in part a people based on a racial, religious, or some other identification. There's multiple things that qualify for that, including killing members of that group, causing mental and physical damage to that group, preventing births within that group, taking children from that group. There's there's a couple different things. And what happened on October 7th was horrific, and lives were lost. However, there has been a system in place by the Israeli government that has gone on for 75 years that has been a continuation of a genocide and an oppression and an apartheid state against Palestinians. And that power dynamic is relevant to this conversation. We could get into the semantics of whether October 7th was a genocide because it was the slaughtering of a group in part on the basis of uh, of being Zionists. And there's been a system in place that follows the 10 stages of genocide that hits every single article necessary to classify as genocide from the genocide convention that happened after the Holocaust, where they, where the UN define what constitutes a genocide. Yeah, I want to drive home that the attack on October 7th was terrible and lives were lost. And there's this system in place that has been around for 80 years to systematically genocide and ethnically cleanse the Palestinians for the sake of this Israeli ethnostate, this Jewish ethnostate. But, you know, you know, it's like there's a, there's been a system in place that has led to this. 
Right. Exactly. And, and it's not only that it's a yes. And it's, they are both like what happened on October 7th is deeply connected to what has been happening for the last 80 years. Because when we look at what Hamas did, you also see a group of people who are operating from a place of deep, deep oppression and trauma and have been met with nothing but violence. Their mm-hmm. peaceful protest, this people's peaceful protest, I'm not saying Hamas has always been peaceful. I'm saying Palestinian people's resistance, ha- having peaceful protests have been met with violence. And so yes. when we see what happened on October 7th, in the same way that I'm seeing what's happening now, I see a group of people who are committing terror because of the terror that was done unto them and has yeah. been done unto them. And so I think, yes, exactly. And I think that when we see that the root cause isn't Hamas, the root cause is Israel. Israel. <laughs> yes, Hamas is bad. What Hamas did was bad. And we can say that. And the reason why Hamas exists, the reason why Hamas did this is because of the same root cause that is, it is hurting Israelis, it's hurting Palestinians. So I think that that's something we have to see because the more that it becomes this thing of like Hamas did this, Israel did that, Hamas did that, you know, it's like, it's not about like this compare and despair. Exactly. It's not equal. And also it's all because of the same thing. It's not like they're two different parties against each other. It's really just Israel that has caused all of it. It has caused the division and it has caused this group to form and to do the things it did. Yeah. And like back to the U.S. being seen as the good guy or like Britain's being seen as a good guy for creating this ethno state, both of them turned around Jews. Right. I hope, yeah. I hope people recognize that they did not create this out of the, the goodness of their hearts to create, to make this, to cleanse a place in order for Jews to occupy it. No, they did it because of anti-Semitism, because they did not want Jews in their countries. Yep. Yep. Exactly. The U.S. turned around thousands of Jews and sent them to Israel. I, I want to make that very clear. And Jewish safety and Palestinian liberation are one and the same. Exactly. exactly. Because Palestinians will not be safe so long as Israel and this Zionist project to ethnically cleanse the land of Palestinians exist. Pal- Palestinians will not be safe. They can't return to their homes. Like people who have been exiled do not have the right to return to their ancestral homeland. As long as that exists, there's always going to be resistance to the Zionist project. And like at this point, Hamas is an idea. Yeah. Whenever there has been an oppressive regime in history, there has been opposition to it. And what we are seeing today is not going to get rid of Hamas. If you want to get rid of resistance, you have to get rid of the underlying problem, which is an ethno state that treats Jewish people as first class and Palestinians who had been living there as second class citizens. And I would also say that, like, you know, we were talking about like anti-Semitism is real. It's here in America. It's nationwide. 
I don't think that an ethnostate that commits genocide against people of color is going to resolve the issue. It's only going to create fodder for anti-Semitism. And there's been this like really interesting concept that I've been trying to wrap my head around is that like Zionism and like Western imperialism requires the Jewish identity and Jewish pain and trauma to enact imperialist violence and colonialism. On the other hand, white supremacy requires anti-Semitism and requires the Jewish people to say that there's a higher evil and to say, you know what? We're not responsible for this. The Jews are responsible for this. Right. They control the money. They control the media. They are responsible for this. So that puts the Jewish community in a double bind because what I struggle with is like people who claim to be Jewish are enacting this violence and are controlling all of these different media sources. And that is further, it's making the problem of anti-Semitism worse because it's fitting these anti-Semitism tropes of Jews controlling the media, Jews controlling money. Like that is just a terrible cycle. And the ethnostate is not going to solve the underlying issue of anti-Semitism. And we deserve to be safe wherever we live. Period. Period. Yeah. And I think it's like no coincidence that it's not only that these ethno nation states are going to create more anti-Semitism. It's the ethno state was created because of anti-Semitism. Yes. And so yes. It, just in the same way that the U.S. was created because of because of a genocide, because of white supremacy. So and racism towards and indigenous racism. people. Exactly. And so all of those things are a part of what, if that's what you made to make your land, it's going to be there and it's going to be pervasive. But yeah, I think that that is something that it's why it is so pervasive is when you made a land and you made a land because of anti-Semitism. And of course, you're going to feel this like, territorialness around it right and and in the same way when people hear free palestine and they mistake that for a call to kill all jews it's because there's this mindset when it comes to imperialism that a land belongs to a certain group of people and so if palestine is free then where do all the jews go that's like the big question that yeah, that's a big question and you're going to kill all of the jews from the river to the sea is right. that what you're calling for Exactly. And it's like the the reason why people are in that mindset is because of imperialism has taught us that certain people can be on certain parts of the land and it's owned by certain people. When we say free Palestine, we mean free the land and let everyone live there. Yes. Does not mean create another ethno nation state, you know? And so I think that Palestinians, no, that's exactly. And Palestine before 1948, had Christians, Muslims, and Jews and, and other minority religious groups. And yeah. they all lived in in relative harmony. Yes. What started to cause a problem was the idea of Zionism. Right. And, and the way that Zionism... Uh, so I looked up, there's some definition online about anti-Semitism... And it includes any speech against Israel as anti-Semitic as well. And so when we talk about this and we talk about untangling it, it's like, it, this is hard shit. It is not easy because of how 
deeply entrenched Israel wants us to feel that any anything against them is against all Jews. And, you know, Biden said that thing where if there's no Israel, Jews can't be safe. <laughs> He's so scary. What is, like, do you hear what he is? Yeah. In, he is indicating about Jews in America. He's saying that you are not safe in America. You would only be safe in this ethno state. I'm not going to make this place safer for you. I would rather you go move here, which is inherently anti-Semitic. And that is why Israel was created. That is the same mindset that, you know, governments and imperialist powers had back in 1948, you know, was let's give the Jews something. They get to have their own place because we don't want them here. And so I think that that is the harder that Israel tries to tell us that anything against them is anti-Semitic, the harder we have to pull back and say, this is what actual anti-Semitism is. (laughs) And actually you're being, you know, the whole concept of Israel is anti-Semitic. So, you know, not only is it not in one place, exactly a genocide in order to have it. (laughs) Exactly. And not only is it not anti-Semitic to call out Israel, it's anti-Semitic to support Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and so I don't know if people are there yet. You know, we might, it might take some time, but I do think that that is, that I just to keep thinking about um, this speech that somebody gave at the Hanukkah for ceasefire, where he was talking about, yeah, just being cut from the same cloth and how safety for one means safety for all. And so I think that when we can shift our mindset around what it means to have a free Palestine, it means safety for everybody. It does not mean more of this. And it, and of course, people would mistake that because they saw what Israel did. It was a group of people who were deeply traumatized and oppressed, creating trauma and oppression onto others. And so if the cycle continues, if, if now that Palestinians are traumatized and oppressed, that they're going to do that, you know, that's the fear is that And it just keeps us in this endless loop of violence. And there is opportunity for generational healing and for stopping this pattern from continuing. And there's been some really incredible um, rhetoric online. And I think it was Angela Davis was talking about their friend who said that Palestine is a litmus test for humanity. And I think I I really want to on that point that like when we are talking about Israel, we're talking about this group that had been subjugated and exiled from their land and then forced by Western imperial powers to commit genocide on another group when they themselves had experienced it. They're backed by Western imperial powers and the entire world is watching them commit a genocide in 4K. If we allow that we allow it everywhere yes yes exactly you're gonna care you're gonna care when it happens to you yeah Yeah. you're gonna care when you get classified as whatever that might be a liberal somebody who's queer somebody who's trans somebody who's jewish in the united states like if you accept it now you are allowing this to perpetuate Right, right. Exactly. And there is a real chance, and I have a lot of faith, like I really have a lot of faith that we are going to see the tide shift yes. 
in our lifetime and that we are going to see this generational violence end and we can build a better world. You know, like when we're kids and everybody talks about like, I want world peace. Yeah. There, there's a quote of peace is a white man's word. Liberation is ours. Yeah. We want everyone to be liberated. We want everyone to have freedom. And isn't that the fucking most American thing is to want freedom for everyone. Right. Isn't that what being a true quote unquote patriot means is to want freedom for people. Right. I think that this whole, like the litmus test idea, not only is it a litmus test, I think that this has changed my whole approach to activism. Like this one issue because of the ways that there is an opportunity to see the humanity of everybody in this situation. And that's what Naomi Klein, what she's pointing out is that we have to see the humanity of the people on the quote unquote other side. And I think that in this situation, because of where we are poised as American Jews, we have this unique insight into the humanity of people who are actively committing oppression. And I think that having that window into that is changing the way that I'm going to approach other social causes, because I think that we have to be able to see the humanity in the other person, or we're never going to listen to each other. And we're never going to be able to change each other. That is something that has, it's woken me up a little bit. I think that there is a lot of, you know, I see a lot of 22 year olds online shout out. If you're 22, I love you. But there, there is a lot of like, if you don't get it, like fuck off, you know, which that was me when I was 22, 100% balls to the wall. You know, if you don't get it, fuck off. And honestly, like for certain people and especially for Palestinian people, like I do not expect them to empathize with the, the oppressor. Right. I do not expect that at all. I expect people to be able to say fuck off and you get to say that, you know, in the same way that we don't have to empathize with the Nazis, you know? Um, But I think that as people who share the identity of those who are committing oppression, we have a responsibility. Just like Halel said, you know, he literally, that man said, thou shalt not do unto your neighbor what was done unto you. And Mm -hmm. that is our responsibility as Jews is to have these conversations and is to be able to move people. And people can be moved because we can see their humanity. We cannot move people by ignoring their humanity. And we have this special knowledge of Judaism and what are the values of Judaism that don't align with Zionism? So how do we ground back into those Jewish values of treating your neighbor as yourself, as wanting to fix the world with tikkun olam or pikuach nefesh, understanding that every life is important and then you have to disobey any other Jewish law in order to protect one life or B'Tselem Elohim, that every single person is made in the image of God. And so we have that knowledge to separate the two from one another and a responsibility to do it. Yes, exactly. And I think that that is why we are seeing so many faith leaders coming to the table and specifically rabbis. Like mm-hmm. I, I am really impressed with the rabbis I've seen from progressive Jewish organizations in the city at these direct actions. They might not be posting about it online because of the pressure from their donors who are largely funded by Zionists, but they Mm -hmm. are out there, you know? And I think that that is something that was so dystopian about this whole thing is like, 
these same organizations that we grew up with that taught us these values turning their back onto a group of people. And I think that that has been really hard to witness, you know, and, and similarly in healthcare, just seeing like the way that these big institutions that told us do no harm are turning around and doing harm by ignoring the genocide. Well, I just think of like any Jewish institution that was, I swear to God, if you make a land back acknowledgement or like a, if you start your meetings with a land acknowledgement and you are turning your back on this, like you are a hypocrite. And I, I know we were just talking about like shaming people, but that's the dichotomy that we're seeing is these organizations that taught us these values are turning their back because they ultimately are Zionist organizations that are, they're working as they're supposed to in saving face by appearing like liberals. But when there's an actual issue, they are not addressing it. And our audience is people who maybe attended these organizations. Right. Um, I'm not shaming people who participated in these organizations because they didn't know better. No. Yeah. Right. And we're all drinking the same propaganda water, you know, we're all drinking the same thing. And we literally grew up thinking that saying no to Israel is saying is being anti-Semitic. And so I think that it's these organizations um, have that mindset too. And that is what is so freaking, it's such a mind fuck because it's like, on the one hand, we have all these values of tikkun olam, b'tzalem elohim, pikuach nafesh. Yeah, <laughs> you got it. I am um, just, I did give a speech where I totally butchered <laughs> that. I did not say pikuach nafesh, but I did. Anyways, um, we learned all of that, right? Um, and then we also learned that this ethno-fascist state was our salvation. And so it's like, it's a mindfuck. It's like these two different sides of a coin. And so I think that, these Jewish organizations, you know, hold both of those things. And it is so incredibly insidious that like, not only are these Jewish organizations, it's also healthcare organizations. It's all of these like, you know, humanity, things that are set in place to protect people's humanity. These institutions allegedly are meant to do that and are actively causing harm. It is a mind fuck is the only two words I can think of to describe. Yeah. Oh, real quick, I was just going to go through the the last stages of genocide just for reference. Um so I think it, we left at stage 6, which is polarization, and then there's 7, which is preparation. Um yeah, and I mean the US has been stockpiling weapons in Israel for years. And the US has been and our US taxes has been directly funding the IDF to prepare for anything like this. There have been documents that have been leaked that are about an ethnic cleansing plan for Gaza that are about something somewhat similar to a final solution about Gaza. You know, I've been deep in the internet. Um, so I, a lot of the stuff has been taken down already, you know, because of censorship, but I'm sure that that stuff is going to come out in the near future. And then there's stage eight, which is persecution. Victims are identified because of their ethnicity and death lists are drawn up. Sometimes people are segregated into ghettos. That's Gaza and the West Bank. Then stage nine is extermination, which is what we are seeing today. 
And then stage 10 is denial. And we are seeing stage 10 in real time of people who are saying that this isn't genocide, people who are denying the numbers that are coming out of Gaza. And I've had conversations with people about this because the numbers are coming from Hamas. The Gaza Health Ministry is a part of the government that is in Gaza, but I would almost liken that to saying, I don't trust numbers that are coming out of like, I don't know, the Department of the Interior because there's the Republican Party is running it right now. There are social systems that are in place that can be separated from the political party that is currently occupying it. And also, if your concern is about the military unit of Hamas, that's the Al-Qassam Brigades, which is a separate wing of the government. But in either case, that denial of what numbers are actually coming out and to one of the things I heard was, well, they include fighters as the numbers of people that have been killed in Gaza. I would counter that with there is on record children and infants and preemies that have been murdered. There's, Are you suggesting that these children and these infants are part of Hamas? Right, right. And also the estimates are that there's 22,000 members of Hamas. I think that was one number that I had heard. So any number beyond this is say that they have been successful in wiping out all of Hamas, then any numbers that have gone above that number are no longer members of Hamas. And we know that the IDF has not successfully killed members of Hamas because the top leaders of Hamas are in other countries. Right. And they, and Israel just bombed a building in Beirut, in Lebanon. They just bombed the capital of their neighboring country. Yeah. Kill yeah. a leader of Hamas. So, so let me be clear is that the leaders of Hamas, if this is about attacking Hamas, are not in Gaza. Yeah. No, this has never been a strategic attempt to eliminate Hamas. This has always been an elimination of a group of people. And that is what Israel wants us to believe that this is about Hamas. And this has always been about land and money and power. Masha Gessen uses they, them pronouns, um, is a Russian-American journalist, author, translator, and activist um, who's been an outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. They wrote this amazing article about how they were likening Gaza to a ghetto and what's Mm -hmm. happening now to the ghetto is being liquidated. And what they were talking about in their article, which I found really interesting. And I actually heard about this from my dad and I was immediately like, you're wrong. I don't believe this. But then I read that <laughs> thing and I was like, okay, you have a you're point. Like- but they wrote in their article about how in the ghettos in Warsaw, people were living there for a long time, right? And there became government bodies in these ghettos that were, mm-hmm. you know, they were Jewish people who were doing this and were governing people, right? Because- the Nazis were outside making sure no one could leave, but inside made structure. And so when I see Hamas, I see that, you know, I see a group of people who were deeply oppressed and needed a governing body. And the governing body before Hamas was too powerful and too close to letting people have rights 
right? The PLO that they needed a, a one that was going to be controversial. And that's what Israel prompted, you know, they, they made them more powerful when they were just a small voice. They made them a louder voice so that we could dehumanize everybody in Gaza. To this piece too, is like the Black Panther Party started as a social services organization and then became an arm resistance to segregation and to Black discrimination in the United States. And they were labeled as a terrorist organization for fighting back against an oppressive regime. And that's what Hamas did as well, is that they started as a social organization providing social care within Gaza and then developed the military wing to it. And a lot of people cite the, I think, 1987 charter, I think, was extreme. Like it in the language, it does say to kill all Jews and people focus so intently on that and do not consider that the organization has evolved. And the 2017 charter, which is far more secular, says that the focus is on the Zionist project that is Israel and the occupation of Palestine. And it is not an attack on the Jewish people. There's no problem with the Jewish people. And some Zionists have been like, well, this goes back like hundreds of thousands of years. And I'm like, if you ask any Palestinian, they're going to say that this started in 1948. Right. This is, this is not a thousand year issue. This is not a religious issue. It's a colonization issue. It just happened to be people that were Jewish who identified as Jewish. And so It was only a matter of time before there was a a resistance born of this oppression and that that resistance group might have accidentally used the language that could be misinterpreted as anti-Semitism. But you cannot apply European Western anti-Semitism to the Hamas charter because that ignores the history of colonization and oppression of the Palestinian people. Right. Exactly. And I would even argue that the reason why Hamas conflated Jews with the state of Israel is the same reason why all of us are conflating (laughs) the state of Israel, right? And it's all intentional. It's because, once again, Israel has decided that it is the voice of all Jews. And so, therefore, any attack against them is an attack against all Jews. Anti-Semitism is real. And I'm not denying that, like, I'm sure... I'm sure there was anti-Semitism in that too. The reason why anti-Semitism keeps getting out there is because of the ways that Israel has obfuscated it to make it look like everything that is anti-Israel is anti-Semitic. And I I also think that this brings us back to the beginning of this episode. Um, But what we were talking about around resistance, I think that you know, it's been three months, right, for us. And mm-hmm. we've been like activated by this and we are we are out there, balls to the wall. Um, and Palestinians have been fighting for, you know, almost 80 years, right? Mm-hmm. And I am looking to them right now to figure out what to do, you know, because they're watching like their entire families being wiped off of the map. I'm talking about Palestinians in America or Britain, yeah. all in the diaspora. Yeah who have family in 
yeah. Palestine who are actively losing their 40 family members, their like entire bloodlines are being wiped out. And they also, even if they don't currently have family there, they still have a connection to that place. Yes. And I'm finding so much strength from their ability to continue resisting and continue the fight for freedom. I can't even imagine because I'm exhausted and I'm not, you know, I don't have family there. I don't, I'm not seeing this happen to my whole family. I am watching this on Instagram, like watching a horror movie. It doesn't feel real. I keep thinking, oh, it's just a movie and it's not. This is like actually happening to people and I'm, I'm exhausted. And so I think that, that knowing that whenever there has been violence, there has been resistance. Resistance is not something that happens and then all of a sudden change happens and there's peace on earth. Resistance is a lifelong process and we have to find a sustainable way of staying within movement so that we can make change and also so that we don't allow ourselves to change and become numb and lose our humanity. And I saw something that said, it would be unfair for you to stop fighting for Palestinian liberation when Palestinians have been fighting for 80 years and they've never lost hope. And that's another thing that I ground myself in is that Palestinians have been living this horror. Mm -hmm. They've been living in a Holocaust for 80 years Mm -hmm. and they still have hope for a better future where everyone is treated with dignity and respect. Yes. And when I see them, I see my own ancestors. Like I see our legacies of resistance and resilience to decades of oppression. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that what Israel wants us to do is to dehumanize this group of people and say they're all terrorists. And it's like, we are so connected in the ways that we stand up and say no to injustice. And Mm -hmm. The same way that Palestinians are doing it now is the same way that our ancestors did, you know. During and back, back to Masha's piece is in the Warsaw Ghetto and with this the social structures, yep. there was a Jewish armed resistance called the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising where they fought back against Nazis and they were treated with reverence. Yes. and, and that- Which is a really uncomfortable thing for some people to be like, well, but that's different. Like, and I'm like, what was different? The color of their skin? Right. And I think that's something that Masha points out is this concept of the politics of memory. It's like we we choose not to remember certain parts, right? And we choose to let it be a memory. We choose to let it be something fixed in history and not something that has roots in something much, much deeper and that has been around much longer too. Maybe now is a good time for me to share my letter. So this is in light of this doppelganger concept and mirror world and inviting people into this conversation. Um, I really wanted to compile my thoughts about it. And I recorded myself reading this letter on Instagram, but podcast format is also very helpful for connecting with other audiences. So I'm going to reshare it now. I want to speak directly to my Jewish community. I know there is real pain from the loss of 1,200 people and the taking of 240 hostages on October 7th, 2023, 
and from a rise in anti-Semitism globally. I have family in Israel, and I too worry for their safety. October 7th triggered us deeply, reminding us of centuries of anti-Semitism, oppression, dehumanization, pogroms, and the Holocaust. Loss of Jewish life hits not just a nerve, but also the very DNA in our cells. Surviving genocides has been woven into the fabric of our community. We proudly share our stories of resilience and survival. But I want to ask, have we healed from that generational trauma? Have we collectively worked through the grief, pain, terror, and horror that we experienced? Have you worked through your own familial trauma through therapy or other means? If we have not worked through our collective trauma, then continue to feel triggered, lash out, and hurt others around us. It's the same with individuals, but on a collective scale. Did we have time to collectively heal before migrating to Palestine? Do we believe that our ancestors peacefully moved into the land after being starved, tortured, gassed, and eradicated? Following European pogroms in the Holocaust, Jews needed a safe place to call home. Nations across the globe turned us away because of anti-Semitism. Britain promised a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine via the 1917 Balfour Declaration, which noted the, quote, existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, unquote. While Palestine was not officially a country, there was a growing sense of Palestinian identity that did not have the time or the resources to blossom into an independent state under the Ottoman Empire and then by British occupation. The British saw the potential Jewish state as a strategic imperial interest that would serve as a stronghold in the Middle East. But regardless, Muslims, Christians, and Jews lived in Palestine before 1948. In my Jewish elementary school, I was taught Israel became a state in 1948. But I was never taught that Palestinians refer to 1948 as the Nakba, the catastrophe. The Nakba was a forced displacement of 750,000 Palestinians from their homes by Zionist militias. Thousands of Palestinians were killed and 530 villages were destroyed between 1947 and 1949. Almost every single Palestinian was affected by the Nakba as it drove survivors to become refugees in their own land or abroad. And any Palestinian that fled in 1948 or any time afterward is not allowed to return and is in permanent exile. My Jewish education taught me about the Arab-Israeli war, but not about an ethnic cleansing. I was also taught about the Six-Day War, how neighboring countries were primed at the borders and Israel launched a preemptive assault against Egyptian, Syrian, and Jordanian forces. I was not taught that Palestinians referred to 1967 as the Naksa, the setback, as Israel seized control of the remaining Palestinians territories of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. By the end of the war, Israel expelled an additional 280,000 to 325,000 Palestinians from their homes, including 120,000 to 150,000 who were displaced from 1948. I was not taught that the military occupation of those Palestinian territories has not stopped since 1967 nor the occupation has become more violent and intense since. My family still dreams of a two-state solution. There was hope 
through the Oslo Accords when Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and the Palestinian Liberation Organization Chairman Yasser Arafat were seen shaking hands on the White House lawn. However, I only recently learned that Rabin was known as the bone breaker Palestinians for his explicit instructions to break the arms and legs of protesters in the 1987 uprising against Israeli occupation. I have serious qualms about the bone breaker being the best representative to build peace through a two-state solution. Often, I have been told that the history of this region is complex. I believe that it is a tactic to turn me away from the truth. Is it possible that we were so deeply traumatized, so desperately in need of a place to call home following the Holocaust, that we fought and killed Palestinians in that process? And that perhaps we have been doing so since 1948, finding ways to demonize and other Palestinians for our own protection and survival, and that these efforts have been backed by Western imperialist powers with ulterior motives. In answering these questions, I ground myself in the Jewish religion. Our doors are filled with songs and prayers for Israel. If you go to your shelf and you pull out your prayer book, it will say Israel multiple times. But what was Israel before 1948, when Jews were spread across the globe? Israel always represented the people of Judaism, Am Israel. Israel represented an ethnostate starting in 1948, Medina. I grew up in a Zionist community, so I've heard the justifications. Jews were always there. We are native to the land. It is our holy land. And yes, I agree that Jews have been there for centuries and that our sacred texts refer to the region, um, Eretz Israel, and to Jerusalem. Yes, we turn to Jerusalem when we pray. However, Jerusalem is important to Christians and Muslims as well. Are we owed monopoly of Jerusalem? Does this justify brutally dispossessing the people who lived on that land? Does the Torah, the Mishnah, or the Talmud say that it is acceptable to slaughter people ever, let alone over land. So let us consider the Jewish laws and traditions of Pikuach Nefesh, Tikkun Olam, Sedaka, and Mitzvah. Pikuach Nefesh is a Jewish law from the Talmud, which states that the preservation of human life takes precedence over all other commandments in Judaism. Forgoing Jewish laws and customs are not just permitted when it comes to life or health. It is required. Tikkun Olam, another law from the Talmud that is the concept of repairing the world. We are responsible not only for our own moral, spiritual, and material welfare, but also for the welfare of society at large. Sadaka, which is most commonly used in reference to charity, but it truly means the religious obligation to do what is right and what is just. And mitzvah, these are good deeds. Individual acts of human kindness, kindnesses are commanded of us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do we draw the line at Palestinians? Palestinians have dissented a Jewish state not because of Judaism, but because Israel's foundation was built on violence. Israel has perpetuated this violence since its creation, further isolating Palestinians from the land and from each other. Palestinians have a long history of resisting this occupation since a Jewish state can only maintain the Jewish majority by dividing its population. 
Israel has maintained this divide through displacement, dehumanization, and ethnic cleansing since 1948. And today we are witnessing an escalation of this violence in Gaza and the West Bank, which has gone unchecked by international organizations and law. As of January 5th, 2024, over 20,000 civilians have been killed and more than 50,000 have been killed in Gaza alone. More than 300 have been killed in the West Bank and several thousand have been injured as well. I would also add to this letter that South Africa has brought a case of genocide by Israel to the international community. So we shall see if something comes to that. If we have not collectively healed, we will do everything in our power to hold on to Israel as our salvation. And we have a lot of power. Israel is not the underdog that it claims to be. Israel is allied with the most powerful military in the world, the U.S. military. So if any dissent of the Jewish ethnostate is treated as a threat to Jewish existence, then any retaliation has the power of the U.S. military. Based on this reaction, I believe that we have not collectively healed and that we are trauma bonded with the idea of the country Israel. I implore the Jewish community to consider your own trauma and our collective Jewish trauma in this moment. Is our salvation safety, and freedom tied to a country? Or could true healing, safety, and connection come from within each of us? Again, I don't think that there is a real threat of anti-Semitism. But is it possible that some of it is related to Israel the country and its actions? Can you separate Israel the country from Israel the Jewish people? A call for free Palestine is to restore basic human dignity and rights to Palestinians, which have been stripped since Israel's creation. Let Palestinians return to their land and together let Palestinians and Israelis build a secular democratic state for everyone. Jews deserve safety everywhere, not just in Israel. The rabbinic sage once said, that which is hateful unto you, do not do unto your neighbor. This is the whole Torah and the rest is commentary. Our collective healing is needed now more than ever, and we will not be free from our history until Palestinians are free. I love this letter. This is my emotional support letter. Yeah. <laughs> the second time I've heard it and I've read it so many times. But yeah, I mean, that I think is just the crux of it. Like, no notes, you know, I we have to heal we cannot continue to perpetuate oppression and violence. And until we collectively heal, we will continue to do so. Yeah. And I think that's something I ground in is, is the ancestors. Like we have so many ancestors who have experienced depression and trauma that I will never understand, but it, it lives inside of me. And mm-hmm. I have to heal that. I can't just let that keep me in a state of perpetual fear of the other and in a state of perpetuating what was done unto me. There was a song that I was looking for and I found it. Um, The line goes, my ancestors, they taught me to say never again. When I cry out for Gaza, it's because I honor them. And I think that's something I, you know, it just really stuck with me. I just got chills hearing that. (laughs) 
I mean, and um, just wait till you hear me sing it. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I really can't sing. It just, I think that's something I keep grounding in is that like, we all need to heal <laughs> and nobody will be free until all of us are free. And so our healing is so deeply tied to true liberation for Palestinian people and for everyone. Like that is how we heal. We do not heal by continuing to mass murder violence. Yeah. yeah. I just hope people hear it. You know, I've sent that letter to a couple of folks. I actually received like good responses where they're going to consider these questions that I am posing. I want to ask more, but it's a, it's a step in the right direction for this work of drawing Jews out of Zionism and towards anti-Zionism because truly anti-Zionism aligns more with Jewish values. Exactly. And I think that all we can do is continue to ask questions because you can give people facts all day long, but until we start asking those questions internally of ourselves, we will never be able to fully process it. All we can do right now is plant seeds. Like two weeks ago, I would never have thought that my mom would say the word genocide to describe what's happening. And mm -hmm. she last night she did it. And that's not because I shoved information down her throat. It's because I asked questions and she asked me questions and I listened to her and she listened to me and seeds were planted and they grew and we have to keep asking questions. We can't keep just telling people things. So that's what I love about that letter too. Thank you. Thank you. We've decided that we want to end every episode with like a little levity and just talk about something that has nothing to do with this, but has everything to do with being a Bay Area Jew. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. This is something that um, I asked if you did this too, but it turns out you did not. And nobody else <laughs> remembers doing this. If you went to Brandeis Well Day School, shout out. We had to go to bar bat mitzvahs every weekend, right? Like 2007. And so my friends and I were bored as hell sitting, you know, in the little pews. Um, and we played this game where somebody would rip out a piece of their hair and put it on the lap of somebody else. And then we'd have to like find the hair. And I'm convinced that this is why I am gay. So <laughs> um, it turns out no one can relate to this. I feel like I don't know if I made this up, but I... I'm sure I didn't. And if you are bored and you have a long time to be somewhere, just turn to your neighbor, pull out a piece of your hair and put it on their lap. Try to find it. You'll see what happens. If anyone has played this game and you're listening to this podcast, will you contact us and be like, yes, I also play this. Please reach out. It's really vital that you do, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I feel alone and isolated. <laughs> Well, this was so lovely. Yeah. I hope we can we keep fetching till we till we die. We will. We're Jews. We're going to. <laughs> yeah, for life. I still have my Camp Tawanga songbook circa 2001. I'm crying right now. That is giving me chills just seeing the cover. Does it have the song that I'm my own grandpa song? <laughs> Do you yes. Remember? I'm my own grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> I'm my own grandpa. Why was that in there? 
really I know, that. but it really is so. I'm my I'm own, my own grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God, Cam Jamonga really taught me how to ad lib little parts in between verses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know the John Denver Country Roads version. I only knew the Cam Tawanga version. And I Ooh. remember the first time that I heard the John Denver version, I was like, what is this? Take me home, Cam Tawanga, California. <laughs> yeah. No, I know me too. I think they like actually sang that song at karaoke and I was like shook I was like um Camp Tawanga <laughs> yeah California and then I remember on the drive back like on the bus back we would say like wherever we were going I'd be like San Francisco Palo Alto like, <laughs> oh, God wow oh, God oh, I, I think I have one of my like I think it's like a favorite Jewish memory okay of- I love that at my synagogue, there was this like older gentleman who was like, he showed up to every session. He was there Saturday mornings and he was one of the loudest singers of our (laughs) congregation. And like, if you've ever been in a shul and you've like heard everyone sing and it's like kind of off key, some people um, are completely out of range. It's like, it's kind of a mess, but it's also beautiful. But this man, Al, he would always have a vibrato to his voice and you could pick his voice out of like 200 people. You're like, that's Al. That is hundred percent. Al, go off King. Yes. I love that so much. In the tour service, you like, it's a very big thing to like open the arc where are kept and then you parade the Torah around and everybody kisses it and then you read from the Torah and then you put it away and in that moment when you're closing the doors and it is time for that part of the ceremony to be over and Al was just holding on to that last note of the last prayer of just like Amen Al needed to be heard his voice, let Al's voice rise up, baby. That is, I love that so much. That is amazing. That is a universal experience. I feel like every shul has to have an owl. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, well, some shuls have canters where they actually have like somebody whose yeah. designated job is to like lead and sing and like play guitar. And sometimes they have like multiple instruments. They'll play piano and harp and all this other right. amazing stuff. Yeah, um, I also love how like most of the Jewish songs, like the nigoons, are just like wordless melodies. So it's just like yeah, da 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 da, you know, and like you Anyways, um, so a song that I am really trying to make happen, just like fetch, is the song the two thousand and one hit. Um, but Salam Elohim. Are we gonna sing? Did you say let's sing it? <laughs> we all got a life to live. We all got a gift to give. Just open your heart and let it out. Yeah. When I reach out to you and you to me, to one of us, but Salam Elohim. 